The over a decade conflict in northeastern Nigeria has caused thousands of deaths, displaced more than 2 million people, and left over 8 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. The violence has led to loss of livelihood, destruction of trade, and other commercial activities. In 2017, the Borno State Government said that about 1 million houses and public structures worth over 1 trillion naira were destroyed by insurgents in 27 local government areas of the state. As the state government pushes ahead with the rehabilitation of communities, closure of IDP camps, and relocation of displaced persons, there are a lot of concerns around protection and food insecurity. These concerns are linked to the continued threat from insurgents, low economic activity, and the difficulty assessing trade corridors and agricultural resources for fishing, livestock production, and farming. This situation is further amplified by dwindling humanitarian funding and difficulty reaching resettled communities. Can investment stimulate the local economy outside the capital city of Medigui? Can these interventions build resilience in hinterland communities and lead to a path towards long-term peace and security? Hello, welcome to The Crisis Room, a podcast from Human Angle. I am Mushala Abdullahi, standing in for Mary Mustafa. In this podcast, we look at crisis trends across the country and answer the tough questions around them. This week, I'm with a guest, Teniola Tayo. She is a policy advisor and focuses on trade, security, and developmental issues in Nigeria and Africa. Good day, Teni. Hi, Mutala. Thank you for having me. Uh, welcome to the crisis room. What else do you want to tell us about your background? Um, my background is, <laughs> it has gone all over the place, I'd say, but then I started in international development, working as a policy analyst um, in Nigeria, Abuja, Nigeria. And then I also worked in international security, so which um, covers all of the work I've done on the Boko Haram crisis and the Chad Basin, but also now, you know, bringing in international trade and international business, which is now asking the question of how can the private sector, how can industry, or just really how can the creation of jobs help address some of these fundamental issues that lead to insecurity. Um, so in a nutshell, that's, 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 that's why I am. I'm currently on a fellowship at the European University Institute, and I'm also an associate researcher with the West African Think Tank. Well, quite a, a broad portfolio, and it's quite interesting in terms of the nexus between trade, security. Uh, there isn't a lot of conversation around that, and, and of course, that's what we'll be discussing today. And so, just to hit the grand warning, I would like to get your thoughts on the on economic pathways towards resilience in the Northeast. Uh, you've written uh, a number of uh, papers around this issue, and so I want to get your uh, your participation on this subject. Yes, thank you. So I've written two papers on, on that issue. The first one was on socioeconomic resilience of more like micro and small traders in the Lake Chad Basin. 
So it was really asking the question of how they've been surviving in the context of Boko Haram. So these are like market women, you know, farmers and transporters, even very importantly, because when you talk about economic activities in the region, um, you have both traders and transporters. Transport is almost like an industry um, of its own. So we looked at really their survival strategies and found out that many of them just had to switch the kind of work they were doing. So maybe the kind of things they were trading, the kind of goods they were moving around or the kinds of routes that they were taking. And then the second report was looking more at the other side. So if you remember, first of all, it was about small and micro businesses. And now we're asking the question about medium to large businesses because these ones are able to create a lot more jobs. And really asking the question of how, you know, some of them have been surviving um, in the context of Boko Haram. And for a very specific reason, because now there's some moves to try to bring in the private sector even more to the region um, to create the jobs that we know that we all need in the country, but even more so in the north and in the northeast. But to do that, <laughs> you need to convince them that the investment will yield returns and will not be completely harmed by the conflict. And the only way to do that is to show them what others are doing in the space. So yes, that second report was trying to look at what some big businesses are doing in the region. And I mean, there's some really large ones. You have Coca-Cola, you have MTN, you have, um, I mean, the cement company in, in Gombe State. I think that's Lafarge. So, and they're able to survive one way or the other, even though they're experiencing the conflict. And there's lessons to draw from that for for other um, organizations that may be interested in moving into the region. The business case is, is immense, right? So there's a lot of consumption going on in the Northeast and it's increasing even as um, pockets of stability are growing. So there's more demand for consumer goods, for beverages, for um, retail products, you know, people are buying more. And of course, you know that even the NGO scene there is also driving demand. So maybe I should stop here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, so you so there's a lot of variables around in terms of trade, and also when you look at it from a micro and in terms of the micro uh, basis, and as you also mentioned, in terms of the larger investment like from Coca Cola, Estera, but also we look at like from small and um, small scale um, uh, entrepreneurs and businesses, so from the people selling fish to the people doing other in terms of agro agro product. So. When you look at it, for example, when you go to Medjugorje, there's a lot of hustle and bustle. There's a lot of activity when you when you go when you go to the capital city itself. But when you move outside the trenches, then a lot of things begin to drink, uh, go down, and this is part of the uh, issues. For example, that is driving food insecurity in hinterland communities where authorities have resettled people, and we also know that humanitarian actors are finding it difficult to access those areas. So, considering these two weeks on these roads. Lack of access to resources, as we earlier mentioned, from farmers to uh, to pastoralists and to fishing communities. Uh, how do you think the government and international partners can find new ways uh, to bring about food insecurity, inclusive economic good, and restore livelihoods outside the the capital middle? Yeah, trade is one of the ways that um, that is often done. So one way you can help somebody and in a way that is not even linked to social welfare is to buy what they're producing or what they're selling. So just create a market for their good, for whatever, they, for their, whatever they're producing or create some demand. So let them have money in their pockets for what they're producing. But the challenge we have with that now is that, um, I mean, of course, the transport route. So even to move the goods from one place to the other is quite tricky because um, either it's unsafe because of the insecurity or 
you know, the other side, which people don't want to talk about is that maybe they're being extorted by um, members of security forces that are on, on that route, which increases their cost of, really their transaction cost of, of production and and, and, um, and exchange. Um, what I'd say is that, I mean, there's some research that has been done on this, and the reality is that given the constraints of even the Nigerian security forces themselves, not all routes can be protected um it, it would be good to to have an assessment or do an assessment of the routes with the highest traffic so which are the key routes between some of these rural areas and then the city center or areas that are um, a bit better connected and then how can those ones be secured so how can we focus security on those ones so that anyone that's trying to connect from a particular side to the center or to a hub can know that okay this is where i can pass and then i know that my goods will be able to get to where they are where they are going securely but aside trade because trade is one way to increase incomes there's also the issue of capacity building so i know that the bonus state government for example has been quite focused on this so they build a lot of skills development centers. They try to train people on this one and that one and that one. I guess we can ask the question of to what extent those efforts are being spread across the states and not just concentrated in, in particular areas. But even aside to that, it's the question of, of uptake. So when you train people, the idea is that there should be a space that is going to accept them after they're trained, or there should be a market that is going to accept um, whatever they're going to be producing after they are trained. So I think a lot more efforts needs to be, uh, you know, put on the second part of things. So you don't just train people and then just leave it. Even if you give them some money to start up, you see, I think you need to give them a bit more resources than that. So it would be good to even know, you know, um, in more clarity what the skills levels are in these areas. Because, yes, we think that um, they're largely agrarian, you know, farmers and fishers, but it's possible that there's a second generation that is a little bit more connected. You know, it's possible young people just find a way to um, educate themselves, you know, to somehow embed themselves. Maybe they're on Facebook. It's not impossible, right? So yeah. it would be good to have a more accurate understanding of the different skills that was available in the spaces and then figure out how to embed them into the, I mean, into the state economy, but also the national economy and then the regional economy, because you want to create a lot of linkages um, from one um, section of the populace to another. So first of all, it's trade and perhaps focusing resources on securing routes that have the highest traffic as a starting point. And then second of all, it's a very, very detailed skills assessment and then sort of like um, effort matching, effort and resources matching. So if you're doing skills development, make sure that there's somewhere for them to use those skills, maybe by encouraging businesses to come into the region so they can and employ them or make sure that they are markets for whatever they're going to be selling. If you want to train someone how to do tailoring, right, there may not be enough demand for their tailoring services in that city. Yeah. It may be saturated already, but you need to create linkages with other places that may have more demand. Yeah. Uh, this is quite in, 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 uh, interesting. And also when you talk about linkages, so when you're training people on something and providing them uh, support on that stuff, you ensure that there is a market for that. So if you're giving them tailoring machines and 
teaching them how to be tailors, uh, you need to ensure that they are able to produce clothes. So I think this was part of the issues that uh, aid actors had in some of their support to IDPs where they ended up. The IDP is not requiring the kind of uh, uh, support that we, they were given. And so also you mentioned something in terms of uh, the broader vocational and technical training. And this kind of highlights the importance of, I believe, of education, uh, particularly the vocational and technical education uh, in uh, in Borno. And a lot of schools have been destroyed. And so how do government find a flexible system uh, in place? And also adult education will be like an important part of this, considering the fact that the conflict has been going on for over 10 years, so which means that some of the young teenagers that were displaced and are forced to flee and stop going to school are already adults now and so you need some kind of like approach that also gets them involved and so i, I kind of like like the idea of uh, in terms of uh education so but one other thing that you mentioned in terms of security right so there's a lot of conversation in terms of how do you properly allocate security resources uh, considering the large expanse of environment and you also highlighted the fact so for example uh the security threat level across the world so for example Burma to Medjugorje it's a different kind of uh, security threat level there and that route can link you up the way to Cameroon uh, so you also have the route between Medjugorje and Mongono that can lead you up to the lecture and probably into either Nigeria or or, or, or the Chadians uh, side so also you have the Damatugu uh, Medjugorje road which a lot of times it, it I think sometimes it's been considered as kind of yellow because uh, uh, people ply that route but it's still dangerous but not as dangerous as, for example, the route between Medjugorje and Mongono. So uh, you mentioned something on on allocating resources to open up some of these crucial uh, trade routes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, is there anything you want to add in terms of these, uh, the importance of this trade route? And yeah, you also mentioned in terms of the regional aspect of that. Yes. So, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, when you were Talk about the human capacity development efforts. I think that the point you're making is, is very important because sometimes these things are done just to tick a box, and in that, when when it's done that way, then the the main objective really because the main objective is usually about increasing the incomes of people so that they can have better lives, and we should also not lose sight of even the overarching objective, which is stabilization, because the idea is that you want to create spaces, you know, that are less vulnerable to Boko Haram, and in what ways? We know that in the past, um, if you even talk to a lot of people in the region, they'll tell you that it was a very common thing for young women and young men to run away from home to join Boko Haram because they felt that they may have um, some economic opportunities there. But when you talk to some of those people now, they say that this is happening at a much um, lower rate. In fact, in some places, it's almost stopped happening. So that's the overarching objective. We want to create a more industry, we want to improve the economy in these areas so that um, communities are less vulnerable to Boko Haram, both in terms of Boko Haram attacks or even Boko Haram enticements into the conflict economies or even into direct supports to the insurgency. So that's very crucial. So people-centered um, inter uh, people -centered interventions. And then on trade, um, I, I do think that uh, I mean, we, we know that the Chad Basin was, was a big trading area before the conflict, and we know how much it's played in the lives of you know, economic actors in the space, and we know how much that declined over time. We talk about fish, talk about pepper, and even some of the agri other agri-produce um, that were being exchanged in the region. So I think that there should be a lot more fo focus on trying to revive that, but even also trying to take advantage of broader trade um 
instruments, right? Because even in the Africa uh, level, there's a new trade agreement, free trade agreement in Africa that the like, Chad Basin could even be seeking to take advantage of, just to put more money uh, in the pockets of people. So, I mean, there's a broader point I want to make about why this is important. I don't know if this is the time to do that. Yeah, so, well, yeah, so you mentioned something, and probably after that you can make that point. Uh, uh, in terms of the insurgents, how they exploit uh, the local environment and also economy, and because they understand the importance, so we have yeah, the reports that, and also research. I I've also heard one or such uh, in terms of how they exploit the fishing uh, communities, the pastoralists, provide them with a place with a place where they can. Uh, where the animals can get pasture and water, where efficient people can go and, and catch fish, uh, things that are not accessible for people in government-controlled areas. And that that's kind of a, like a way to generate income, to also uh, have the population that they need to support the action that, 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 they, that they want to uh, engage in. And so, like, like you mentioned, it's very important that the state provide these uh, social amenities and opportunities for livelihood as a way of uh, preventing people from getting uh, close to or, or intertwined with the insurgents. So yeah, that last point, that point that you wanted to make. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah spot on. Yes, the, I mean, the insurgents have been exploiting this need for, for income, right? So they need that the community members have for income. They've been exploiting that um, very, very broadly by even, like you said, creating markets for them to exchange their goods by taxing um, their access to farmlands or even to producing some of these things. And I, I know the thing is, this is not even a case of social welfare because it's not even about government or the insurgents touching anybody money. It's literally about them being able to get value for the for the work of their hands. And it, it's very important that um, all of the interventions seek to make sure that you know communities are not finding themselves between a rock and a hard place in those situations. But then the broader point I wanted to make was um, more about you know why this is important because I hear so many different narratives. You know, around even just a few days ago, somebody in, in one of the spaces that I was in, somebody was saying that why is it that the government um, is investing in the north? That why is it that they're taking these things to the north? Sometimes when I'm in those spaces, I just keep quiet because for anyone that looks at the numbers, we know that um, as much as the whole of Nigerian average is poor, there is still an imbalance between the north and the south, right? For many reasons that are tied to historical issues and colonialism. So there's a lot of catching up that has to be done and that has to be supported from the government. And when you don't when you don't take that into consideration properly, when you don't take into consideration that um, when it comes to education capacity building, you need to invest a lot more efforts um, in the north, then, you know, you're shortchanging a whole segment of your population because I always tell people that when you talk about development, it's not for some people. It's not for people in Lagos or people in Abuja. The development should be for the whole of Nigeria. So everyone has to be carried along one way or the other. No matter how slow we are moving, right? Everyone needs to be carried along. And for this to happen, it means that you need to think about solutions that apply to different spaces. So people like thinking about tech now, you know, the tech innovation, fintech. But those are very much city-based, so it's very much a Lagos thing, and you know, based in big cities. Even in some of those places in the northeast, yes, yeah, some people can participate in it, but then they are the minority of the minority. So you can't just think in 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 formal. You can't just think about only those kinds of solutions. You have to go back to other things like a big production. 
because um, when you talk about manufacturing of, of food, so food processing, it's one of the economic activities that can employ people at different scale levels. So it's not like tech where you need to go and you know pick up some certificates online. When it comes to working like in a factory where you're canning food or something, a lot of people can participate in that. And that's one way to begin to lift people up because someone that you employ in a factory Tomorrow they can decide that they want to go and learn coding, right? So you have to start from somewhere and just really carry everyone along. So you need solutions that are, you know, tailored towards the realities and needs of each segment of the population in wherever they are based um, within your country. So I think it's very important because it's the neglect of things like this that even contributed yeah. to Boko Haram emerging. And that's what we refer to as relative deprivation. So everybody's deprived, right? Everybody's yeah. poor, but then there's the relative deprivation that was exploited. Actually, that that point is like uh, super important, inclusive economic growth. Uh, we shouldn't forget the people who are in these inaccessible hinterland communities. And so when you also talk about in terms of the broader national conversation on economic growth, uh, I shouldn't just be focused on people within the capital, but you should include the people who are in Baga, who are in Bama, Banki. All the, there has to be a policy and, and kind of investment that takes them along uh, if we want long term and peace and stability uh this is quite an interesting uh conversation with you Tenny, uh really looking at the issues around the, the trade the economy and uh the, the fundamental stuff like the security that is required to facilitate that and the investment that are needed and so we we, do, we hope the authorities and those who can really support in terms of the international partners and and the governments of be that the, the regional government or the state government and the, the national governments can really seek new approach i understand that a more multi-dimensional uh intervention is required not just focus on uh, the kinetic uh, counterinsurgency uh tactics uh thank you thank you for joining us and yeah wish you all the best with the fellowship thank you so much Montala. yes thank you so we look forward to also having you on subsequent uh, editions absolutely thank you have a good day all right have a great day this is an episode of Human Angle Crisis Room. Join in next week for another episode. Uh, the producer is Anthony Asemota. The executive producer is Ahmed Sekula. <laughs>